So again, good to uh, be with everyone this evening. And I've called my talk, as uh, probably many or most of you know, uh, Practicing Dukkha and the End of Dukkha in a Time of Crisis. And so I'm centering the talk on what, what is right at the core of the teachings of the Buddha. In a very famous passage, the Buddha said, I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. And this could be seen as a summary, very condensed summary also of the Four Noble Truths, that there is dukkha, uh, that's the first two truths, the dukkha and the cause, and then the second two truths are really about ending dukkha, coming to, coming to freedom. And yet, uh, there's actually often a lot of confusion even about what dukkha means. What does the end of dukkha mean? And how does this core teaching really guide us in our formal practice, in our daily life practice, and then in our practice um, in the world, in our work, our service, perhaps our activism. So I want to center on this core teaching and show how both it can be understood, avoiding uh, quite a bit of confusion, and then how it can be a guide really in all the parts of our lives, including a guide for these very challenging times. You know, again, there are multiple crises occurring now. We could name not only the pandemic, of course, but the, the economic crisis, the crisis of democracy, the climate crisis, the crisis around racial justice, and so forth. Probably could add a few more, but a lot, a lot occurring right now. So I want to go back to the meaning of dukkha. That's the word that is usually translated as suffering, sometimes translated as unsatisfactoriness. And those translations are okay in pointing to some of the meanings of dukkha, but they don't give us a lot of clarity about what the end of dukkha means. And I want to uh, point to that. One of the reasons that there is confusion is that the Buddha actually, at different times in the teachings, gave several different accounts of what uh, dukkha means, of several different connotations, we might say, of the meaning of dukkha. And he didn't really systematize those teachings in certain ways, and so they're just all out there. And I think there can be, as I said, a great deal of uh, confusion. What I'm going to point to is that most of the meanings of dukkha that we have, and most of the translations, such as the translation of dukkha as suffering, or the translation of dukkha as unsatisfactoriness, don't make good sense without a lot of clarification of the meaning of the end of dukkha. So I want to, I want to first uh, point to that 
then talk about the end of dukkha, how we practice to get to the end of dukkha in our formal practice, our daily life practice, and then use that framework to also provide a guide in responding to the challenges of the world right now. So, not a small topic tonight. But what I'm hoping to do is to uh, energize and inspire us to actually use the, uh, the core of this teaching to, uh, to give us guidance in all these uh, dimensions of practice. So I think there are at least four different meanings of dukkha that you can find in the teachings of the Buddha. Uh, the first of them is connected with the origins of the word dukkha, you know, in the languages of the time, that dukkha refers to what's unpleasant or difficult or painful. And the term itself has connections in terms of etymology with the notion of an axle not fitting well in the slot on the wheel such that there is a bumpy ride. So one meaning of dukkha is having a bumpy ride. And this is the sense of dukkha that's often translated as suffering. This is where the Buddha says, you know, getting ill is dukkha, old age is dukkha, dying is dukkha. And yet, if we ask what the end of dukkha means in terms of this connotation, it becomes really clear that as long as we're alive, the unpleasant will still sometimes be there. So this meaning can't really be the core meaning of the end of dukkha. Dukkha as the unpleasant, as the difficult, as the painful, continues even when we're awake. The Buddha, when he was older, near the end, last years of his life, had a bad back and had headaches. That was dukkha according to the first sense of dukkha, but presumably the Buddha, being awake, had come to the end of dukkha in the most profound sense. It's similar for two other meanings. A second meaning of dukkha uh, is that whatever is pleasant will at some point become unpleasant. This is called the discomfort of change. And again, that gets to something interesting in terms of practice, but it doesn't get at the meaning of the end of dukkha because the pleasant will always at times lead to the unpleasant, even if we're awake. And it's similar with a third meaning of dukkha, which is uh, dukkha as the way that uh, no conditioned experience can give lasting happiness. It's sometimes said <clears throat> that everything is dukkha because it cannot give lasting happiness. 
Sometimes that's uh, the word used is everything is unsatisfactory. Again, this can point to dimensions of practice, but it doesn't give us clarification or too much of the end of dukkha. Maybe the end of dukkha is when we stop thinking that things will give satisfaction, but the fact that uh, things cannot give lasting satisfaction, that doesn't change. That doesn't end. And so the end of dukkha doesn't make sense there either, I would say. There is a teaching which I think points to the core meaning of dukkha. And this is probably my favorite teaching of the Buddha. This is the teaching called the teaching of the two arrows. How many of you know that teaching? Probably quite a few of you. And this is, this gets at a very simple sense of dukkha. I'm going to say it gets at the understanding of dukkha as reactivity. And this to me makes sense of the end of dukkha. We can, we can see our practice as about ways of coming to the end of reactivity. So let me say what that teaching is and can clarify it. So the teaching was given like this. The Buddha said, everyone at times has unpleasant experiences. And he said that this is like being shot by an arrow. He called it the first arrow. Everyone at times has unpleasant experiences. And we can uh, see this at the physical level. The text itself is more about physical discomfort, unpleasant physical experiences. But we can also see how we can be shot by the first arrow in terms of emotional experiences, negative thoughts, inner, difficult interpersonal experiences, injustice, unfairness, and so forth. I would say these are all examples of being shot by the first arrow. And what the Buddha said is that everyone at times is shot by the first arrow. Everyone at times gets sick, has injury, is not treated kindly, have difficult emotions. In that way, there's no difference between an awakened person and a non-awakened person. The difference, he said, is that because of the presence of the first arrow, an unawake person will tend to shoot a second arrow as if that would help getting rid of the first arrow. So when we have something difficult that happens physically, maybe I... Um, stub my toe on something that was left in my living room. I shoot the second arrow, maybe by blaming myself, blaming my partner, tensing around that part of the body, and so forth. In a similar way, we can see how we shoot a second arrow when there's been something difficult emotional. Maybe we form a negative narrative. We get judgmental towards ourselves or others. These are all examples of shooting the second arrow. We shoot the second arrow as well in terms of uh, events in the world. A lot of conflicts are about two sides shooting the second arrow at each other. And so the Buddha said one learns not to shoot the second arrow. I would say that 
not shooting the second arrow, being non-reactive, is the core meaning of dukkha. And it gives us a pretty clear sense of what practice means. Practice is not to shoot the second arrow. And this can connect, I think, with uh, a very similar teaching that we have from the teaching of dependent origination. Here we'll go with the first slide, uh, Claudia. And this helps to clarify uh, the meaning of reactivity. What I'm going to say is that there are two forms of reactivity. One form of reactivity is grasping onto the pleasant. The other form is pushing away the unpleasant. And we can have this very much clarified by the uh, teaching of dependent origination. This teaching is that in every moment of the experience, we have a contact with something through our senses. It could be, I see something, I hear something, I taste something, I have a thought, and so forth. That's a given. On the basis of that contact, there's a sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral with every moment of experience. Most of our experiences are neutral. Maybe 99% of our experiences are neutral, but some of them are pleasant or unpleasant. And the teaching is that if we're not awake, aware, mindful, we will tend to go through two successive stages. When the pleasant is, is there, we will tend to crave or want something, and then we will tend to grasp after that. That's one form of reactivity. I would say that's one form of dukkha. The second is when the unpleasant is there, we will tend to push away, not want. We were, first will not want, and then we'll push away. This would be being judgmental, saying something nasty. And this is a second form of reactivity. And so uh, we can let go of the slide now. And so this, um, this I think, is the teaching that points to the core of our practice. And again, I think we can express it in this very simple way in ordinary English. We learn how to be responsive rather than reactive. And we study our reactivity in these two forms, how we grasp, how we push away. And so we can, you know, we can look at this. A lot of our practice is seeing how do I grasp after whatever, views, self-image, pleasant experiences. How do I push away reactively the unpleasant views I don't like, and so forth. Now, a key here is that this reactivity has the nature of being semi-conscious or unconscious, somewhat automatic and compulsive. It's different from the fact that sometimes we uh, want something, and it actually can be a wise or skillful choice. You know, I want to be with this person and I'm inclining. That's not necessarily grasping. The grasping or the pushing away, the reactivity, tends to be relatively unconscious. So we can, at times, incline towards something or 
uh, go against something, if we're going against injustice, we, we're uh, not necessarily reactive. Now, what I think is crucial, and this is pointing ahead a little bit, is that we can learn to be non-reactive in all the parts of our practice, all the parts of our lives. And so there's a very close alignment, I would say, between this teaching of the two arrows and the meaning of dukkha that I'm giving and the traditions of nonviolence that we find with Gandhi, Dorothy Day, Dr. King, and others. Basically says, we have received pain, oppression, we will contest that oppression, but we will do so in a way which doesn't simply replicate the pain or the negativity. So I'll come back to that. I think that's a very, very important point. And so the end of dukkha, I would say, is very simple. It's the end of reactivity. So it's uh, simple in concept, hard in practice, right? But very simple in concept. I would say that, that uh, this is the core of our practice. And what we learn is how to manifest this in, a, in terms of noticing our mind, noticing our behavior, and learning how to be non-reactive. And a lot of forms of reactivity, however, as I mentioned, have more unconscious roots. So that actually connects with an important point that I think many of us have heard uh, another way that the core teachings are expressed, was, which is that we're trying to transform greed, hatred, and delusion, right? How many are very familiar with that teaching? Okay. And that aligns very closely with what I've just been teaching. I would say greed is the form of reactivity that is the grasping. Hatred is a sort of an expression pointing to the pushing away. And the important thing is these are both connected with delusion. In other words, we are grasping and pushing away compulsively because there's some kind of fundamental ignorance. And, these, and so adding the piece about delusion, I think, is quite important. We could also use ignorance as a synonym, but it's not an ignorance of facts. It's an ignorance, really, of our deeper nature, of who we are. And so I think we can, we can see, for example, how greed is a form of reactivity and is connected with delusion. And I was thinking here of um, when I uh, offered a course along with my colleague Diana Winston, we offered a course called Greed Management. This was a while ago. We publicized it widely. We thought it was a tremendous course and we had very, very, very low enrollment. To be precise, we had five people who signed up for the course and we had two teachers. But Diana and I didn't care. We loved the exploration. It was a five-week course the uh, final exam was uh, doing slow walking meditation through a newly opened Bed Bath & Beyond store in El Cerrito in the Bay Area. 
and taking notes about what was happening in the mind. That was our greed management course. But what we found was very interesting. We explored it for five weeks. And what I found, and this can, you can see how greed is connected with delusion, that greed we found is compulsive. It's not concerned about consequences. It's also very self-centered. Only my needs matter. So there's a kind of delusion about our, our interdependence, we might say. And in a similar way, we can see how aspects of hatred are also connected with delusion. And, and again, hatred is, I think, uh, one form of the reactivity of pushing away. And, you know, I, I've particularly explored dimensions of that in looking at the judgmental mind, what I have found, and it really goes back to that teaching where we had the slide, is that the, the reactivity of pushing away is based on there being some underlying pain, often that we're not connected with. And that's what I have found in looking at the judgmental mind. You know, for example, if I'm, as a kid, I'm taught that anger is bad, and I'm four years old, my anger gets suppressed, there's a kind of a, a split in myself that I'm hardly aware of. I internalize that message from my parents. I become judgmental of angry people. And it's based on some kind of underlying pain, the pain of suppressing part of myself that I'm not even aware of unless I do inquiry. You know, there's a very similar comment that uh, James Baldwin once made about, uh, about racism. He said, which you could say is a kind of hatred, he said, uh, he said that, uh, let me see where this is. Yeah, he said that um, one of the reasons that people cling to their hatred is that they know that once hatred is gone, they will have to deal with some kind of pain that's there. You know, whether it's the pain that leads people to do, make, do scapegoating, right? Anyway, so this is, uh, and to that extent, something, I would say something like racism is very closely connected with delusion. Greed and hatred are very connected with delusion. So how do we practice? You know, this is really could be what we could explore this for the next five weeks. How do we practice? Given that understanding of reactivity, how do we come to the end of dukkha? And that's what I want to talk about really for the rest of the talk and then open things up. That, and I want to talk about three areas of practice. One is our formal practice. One is our more informal practice, our daily life practice, and the other is our practice in the world. And again, there's, there's a, a complexity here that I pointed to in, briefly earlier, which is that I can be reactive towards something that is actually, on the one hand, could be something valuable to get. I could be, I could say, I really want to be with this person to learn from this person, and I can be very much grasping, even though that could be skillful to do. More obvious in terms of 
how we can be reactive towards something negative, uh, something that actually is not helpful, is not good. I can notice injustice and be very reactive about injustice. I can notice something quite accurately, let's say about, you know, I don't know, about the lack of skill and of the uh, of our leadership and national leadership in handling the pandemic. That's that can be a very very valid insight. I can still be highly reactive about it, and I would say that the extent to which we're reactive, it'll poison my my action. So that's a complexity. That reactivity doesn't necessarily mean I'm deluded or I'm deluded about what I'm reactive about. I might be deluded in thinking that reactivity is going to help, but I may not be deluded about the injustice or about what, I, what I'm perceiving. <clears throat> okay, so how do, we, how do we work with reactivity? I'm going to give four or five basic guidelines, and I think these apply to all the different areas of practice. How do we, how do we uh, practice with dukkha? The first, which is, I think, very crucial, when we have dukkha reactivity arising in our experience, it's really crucial to know the level of intensity of the dukkha. I like to use a scale of 1 to 10. I probably used this when I taught on uh, working with the judgmental mind. A scale of 1 to 10, and when the dukkha or reactivity is a 9 or a 10, we, we can't often be mindful or be present with it. When it's very overwhelming, maybe we touch even something that could be called trauma, then we need to do what we can to come back to balance. So first guideline for working with reactivity is know the level of intensity, see whether it's workable or not. If it's not workable, do that which brings you back to balance, which could be a variety of things. If we're really upset emotionally and it's a 9 or a 10, maybe we talk with someone, we take a walk, we do something physical, we do some reading, whatever. Second guideline, if it's in the workable range, study it. This is what we can do with our mindfulness. A lot of our practice is studying in great depth our patterns of dukkha, our patterns of reactivity. Getting to be an expert or a connoisseur of our reactivity. Very, very crucial. So we can be mindful. We see what it's like in the body. We notice the narratives of the reactivity. When I'm being, let's say, judgmental towards myself, what's that like in my body? What are my narratives? What's going on? Sometimes I can actually look for, is there an underlying pain that I'm not in touch with that's driving my reactivity? So for example, I might be very reactive, judgmental towards someone, and when I do some inquiry, I notice, oh, there's anger. Oh, that didn't feel good what happened. Oh, I'm sad. And sometimes when we touch that underlying pain, the reactivity dries up very, very crucial dimension of working with reactivity, that if we can touch the underlying pain that's really in a way driving the reactivity, 
much as in the model that we had on the screen, then to, to a significant extent, the reactivity will, will dry up and we have more insight into it. We, we start to have insight into the relation of pain or wanting something, and in that case, something pleasant, and our reactivity. When there's a lot of uh, particularly dukkha uh, reactivity against something unpleasant or difficult or painful, it can be very valuable to give ourselves balance with one of the heart practices. That's the third guideline. At times, work with compassion, work with some of the heart practices could be forgiveness or gratitude or going to joy, equanimity, and so forth. A fourth guideline is to start to develop the capacity to have non-reactive responses. This is a whole area that we could take uh, a day or a week on. So, for example, um, I, I often teach uh, six-day retreats with, with uh, Oren, Oren J. Sofer, who I think was teaching. Did he teach on wise speech in, when he came down in January or February? Well, yeah, I think so. So we teach those retreats, and we, we work with the fundamentals of wise speech for four days. And then the last two days... We work with bringing the fundamentals into conditions of reactivity. How can you be non-reactive in difficult interpersonal situations? So there's a whole skill set there, learning how to combine inner work with what happens with outer responses, which are, which are non-reactive. Not easy, right? Not easy, but there's a whole area there that I'm not going to go into in so much uh, detail, but it really points to also the forms of non-reactive response, which I think are connected with traditions of non-violence. I think they're very similar to wise speech practices in that we learn how to deal with difficult circumstances non-reactively. Again, that's the core of the practice, dukkha and the end of dukkha. So, a lot so far. For the rest of the talk, I want to ask how to bring this into our relation to the larger world, what we might call our practice with the larger world, our own participation to help with some of these uh, crises. It may be in our work, our service, our, our activism. And what I want to suggest is that we can use the same basic understanding of dukkha as reactivity and the same guidelines for practice that point to being able to respond moment to moment non-reactively. I think we need the same understanding and it can be very helpful to apply this core teaching to the world. And this, I think, really helps us to understand the, the world in a practice framework. And I think there probably is very common for people almost to have a 
a practice framework for our inner practice, but when we look to the world, maybe we take a social justice perspective that doesn't necessarily integrate our practice. So I think it's important to connect our practice with how we understand and how we respond to the challenges of the world. And this, what this points to especially is this connection of inner and outer practice. I want to read something by uh, Angel uh, Kieta Williams, which I think gets at this also. It also brings in the quality of uh, really compassion for those who we take to be our opponents. For us to transform as a society, we have to allow ourselves to be transformed as individuals. And for us to be transformed as individuals, we have to allow for the incompleteness of any of our truths and a real forgiveness for the complexity of human beings and what we're trapped inside of so that we're both able to respond to oppression or the aggression that we're confronted with, but we're able to do that with a deep and abiding sense of, and these are people, these are human beings that are at the other end of the police baton, that stick, that policy, that are also trapped in something. They're also trapped in dukkha. And for sure, we can witness that there are ways in which they're benefiting from it. But there are also ways, if one trusts the human heart, that they must be suffering. And holding that as the core of who you are when responding to things, I think is the way, the only way we really have forward to not just replicate systems of oppression for the sake of our own power. That expresses also, I think quite clearly what I'm saying that, in other words, that we can have a unity of our practice around this teaching, which is the core teaching. So I want to briefly look at some ways to understand greed, hatred, and delusion in the world, and then briefly some ways, again, of practicing in this in the social realm. I think it's not hard to see how greed gets institutionalized, right? It's not hard to see how there is institutionalized greed, institutionalized hatred, and institutionalized delusion. How that kind of understanding goes a long way in helping us to understand the world. You know, that the uh, I would say that the sense of greed is particularly institutionalized in the economic system and in the political systems. That we can see that uh, uh, greed, economic greed, also often looks like the greed that we found in our um, greed management class. In other words, uh, there's a compulsive nature to it. There's a relatively unconscious nature to it. We will pursue profits even if it destroys the world. You know, or that, you know, I think many of us know that the business plan of the fossil fuel companies actually implies the destruction of the planet. The business plan of the fossil fuel companies is based on extracting all of, and using all of the fossil fuels that are now in the ground, which would take us way above any tipping points. Right? So that's a way that the ec economics, the economic system can be quite unconscious and locked into greed. Or 
no sense of consequences, as I was suggesting, deeply self-centered, you know, that uh, there's never too much. Uh, I saw a news article that uh, Jeff Bezos is now worth $200 million, $200 billion, I should say. Do you know how much money he's made during the pandemic? $50 billion, right? There's no limit. There's no limit. There's, and there also can be a kind of greed for power that I think we can see. I think we can see it in both parties, but it seems to me more obvious with the Republican Party where people are willing to give up ethics, give up, uh, you know, give up uh, democratic norms, give up the sanctity of voting for the sake of power. Right? There's a kind of greed for power there. You know, where there's a willingness to tolerate uh, lying and, and untruths. And in a similar way, we could say that hatred gets institutionalized. Again, we can see this in the form of racism, how it gets institutionalized. Again, remembering that James Baldwin quote, that again, there's a kind of uh, way that hatred or racism, I, I interpret as a kind of manipulation of people uh, to divide and conquer. I think we find that when you look back to the history over the last 300 years, very, very common. And so there's also a kind of institutionalized delusion. You know, there's a delusion of not attending to climate crisis, right? There's some kind of delusion that things will be okay. It's actually for me, I haven't driven a car much, but it's painful for me even to walk out in the streets and watch all the cars keep on driving by with their exhaust pipes. There's some kind of delusion that we're generally all in to some extent. You know, there's delusion about, I remember again, some of the current administration, William Barr, the Attorney General says, there's no systemic racism. That, that's a kind of delusion. And then very little, you know, it seems like a very little contact often with reality, you know, in terms of any number of different issues. Lying and delusion don't matter. They're just what one does to, you know, it's reminiscent, of course, of the strategy of the big lie from, from the Nazi times. You know, that, so we can see in many ways that there is a, a kind of delusion. And again, we could go into a lot of depth and point out the different forms of delusion. And one of the things, one of the quotes that I found that was very interesting comes from a long time ago, but I think similar strategies. This is from the time of the Nixon administration. Uh, the, uh, this was from an interview with the former Attorney General, John Ehrlichman, which he had a little less than 20 years after the policies he's talking about. He said, listen to this for the kind of deliberate, deliberate uh, delusion for political ends. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. We knew we, could, we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, 
but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both very heavily, we could disrupt these communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know that we were lying about these things? Of course we did. Quite a statement, right? That's 20 years after, but it's still so very similar nowadays. So last few minutes, I want to point briefly towards uh, what does our practice for the end of social dukkha look like? And again, I want to suggest that the traditions of nonviolence are really crucial here because they have as right at the center something very similar to the teachings about uh, the two arrows. Again, they're basically saying, we have received pain. We will not pass on the pain, but we will meet pain and oppression with love. Quite something, right? Amazing that that, is, that has been there on the, on the social level. I remember Dr. King once said he thought that the uh, Christian teaching of loving your enemies only made sense in personal relations. It really couldn't work in society. But then he said he studied Gandhi and he saw that it could work, that one can actually have a whole movement based on the notion, very much like what Angel Kyoto Williams said, basically a movement guided by compassion, by wisdom, and by love that still is very forceful. So how do we do this? We combine our own inner work, studying our patterns of reactivity, much as we do uh, just when we're meditating on our own. And then we develop the positive qualities of love and wisdom. And then we find ways to translate those into action. Again, we can do that in our speaking, our communication. It involves, I think, not demonizing others, seeing the suffering of our so-called opponents, seeing how greed, hatred, and delusion is actually uh, ultimately painful. And we can work with the teachings from the Buddha. Hatred never ends through hatred by love. Alone does it end. This is an eternal truth. From uh, Dr. King, it is this whole ethic of love, which is the idea standing at the basis of the movement. So Dr. King said, our movement has to be based on love in action. And therefore, he said that... Uh, at the center also of the movement is the transformation of anger. He thought that without the transformation of anger, he thought that particularly um, the, the rage of black people would be destructive. He said there has to be this inner transformation and then outward action that can, that can work with this. So how do we do this ourselves? 
I think that if we're acting, and I hope many of us are acting in ways that we feel called to, whether it's in relationship to the election or climate issues or something local and community-based, but it's really a crucial time for all of us to stand up. And we can follow, I think, this vision of connecting inner practice with bringing that practice out into the world. Very crucial is continually doing one's inner practice, I would say number one, having a community like the White Heron Sangha where you can compare notes and support each other in doing that work to really not be isolated but to be really uh, connected. And then I think find the kind of action that calls you right now. I think all of us might look to see if there's some action. Again, we did... uh, Actually, James and I were part of, James Barras and I were part of a climate day long about uh, two weeks ago. We had 300 people come, maybe some of you, and we, uh, we said the precondition for coming is that you have to commit to action, no matter what it is. You know, for some it was election related, some it was climate related, and others. So I think find community, connect your outer action with inner practice, and find something that you can stay with. And then let it be guided by this core teaching about dukkha and the end of dukkha. So I'll end with uh, another expression of this from John Lewis, the recently departed congressperson. He said, when we were sitting in, it was love and action. That's what we're looking for. When we went on the freedom ride, it was love and action. The march from Selma to Montgomery was love in action. We did not do it simply because it is the right thing to do, but it's love in action, that we love our country. We love a democratic society, and so we have to move our feet. Maybe just take a moment now before we go into discussion and reflect on what might have been resonant with you. any intentions you might have coming out of the evening. Thank you for your kind attention. I actually have come to really like doing talks on Zoom where I can actually see 25 faces, which I don't usually do when I'm giving a talk. It's, it's, it's actually pretty cool. So let's open things up. And uh, Claudia, should we uh, use the raise hand function? I think we can do that. And uh, don't forget to unmute yourself to speak and then... Um, and then... Um Mute yourself if you want to, or if you think you might have more to add, stay unmuted. The thing is, uh, there are three screens, so I can't really we, see everybody. We can't see hands raised, so use under participants, use the raise hands function. You could also send a chat to Claudia if you want to have it uh, simply be a question that uh, she reads rather than you, you uh, giving it. So 
Any could also be a comment, doesn't have to be a question. A comment, a reflection, something to share. Ramal, did you want to say something? Unmute. So Vimal, if you want to speak, uh, you have to unmute first. Oh, I was just playing with the computer, uh, trying to get the speaker on the... Okay. Oh, you're just playing around. Very meaningful, and especially in today's day, very meaningful talk that we can apply to the things that occur every day and not get so traumatized by it. Thank you. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Amal. Yeah, I'm trying to show kind of the unity of practice. All I Again, I was thinking of practice as formal practice, our informal practice in our daily lives, and then our practice in the larger world. So, And that we can have a unity. We don't have to sort of be a different person when we do election work. We can really have that unity. Yeah. Anyone else want to Marcel? Yeah. Marcel, unmute. I believe there's a question on the chat section. Thank you so much for bringing in the social level of action. Uh, because one of the, the challenges I have faced sometimes in our practices is it has been so limited and so focused on the individual. And as a social psychologist, it's like, okay, what's, what's happening in the world? How can we use it? And so thank you for building the bridges for us here. And I'm really looking forward to connecting with people and really creating some involvement, active involvement that really calls our heart to action. Right. Thanks. Thanks, uh, Marcel. And can can really be... Uh something where the community can play a very important role because I think we need this kind of mutual support, mutual uh, support uh, both as it were emotionally and also in terms of really connecting, you know, which was really one of the themes of my talk, connecting our inner practice with how we respond to the world. Thank you. I, Thank you. I think maybe apropos of that is a <clears throat> question on the chat Someone asked, could you expand on how and when reactivity can be mindfully transmitted to others? Let's see, could how reactivity can be mindfully transmitted? I'm not quite sure what that means. Marty, can you clarify? This was from Marty. Yeah, I guess what I meant on that was... Uh, we're, we're kind of, we're creatures of reacting to all of these crises now, right? Yeah. That are coming up. Uh, and, and some of our actions can be, you know, pretty strongly worded. And I was just wondering if you could expand a little bit more on how we as Buddhists can, can respond to these things by writing letters to the editor and getting actively involved but doing it in a mindful way that's appropriate for the times. Yeah, thank, thanks, Marty. It's a, a great question. And I, I'm, um, 
think I pointed this uh, briefly, but I'm using the word reactivity knowing that sometimes we use the word reaction almost as a synonym for responding. And I'm trying to make a pretty precise distinction between reactivity and response. And the hallmark of what I'm calling reactivity is some kind of, uh, again, semi-conscious, automatic way that we grasp on or push away. So, um, you know, we might in ordinary English, though, talk about, oh, my reaction to the, uh, I don't know, the two conventions, and we might use the word reaction and not necessarily mean reactivity. So I want to just be clear on uh, how we're using the word. So the reactivity is characterized by a certain compulsive nature, something that's not worked out. And again, you know, following that, uh, you know, the old teaching about dependent origination, it really means that there's some, for the, when we're pushing away, there's some kind of pain beneath it that we're not touching. You know, the reactivity is driven by pushing away the pain. And so what that means, for example, if I'm really upset about, I don't know, um, what's going on in relationship to the pandemic, I want to do, uh, I want to really combine uh, some inner work. If I'm noticing myself quite reactive, which could take the form of being judgmental, blaming, really, uh, you know, uh, angry in a somewhat uh, out of control way a lot of the time, then it really would, the invitation would be to do inner work with uh, those states, with being judgmental, uh, sometimes with, with anger, and so forth. And to learn, uh, really to ask, uh, can I, you know, let's say I'm communicating, writing a letter, I don't know, to the local newspaper. Mm. Is my writing, does it seem reactive? Or, you know, where is it coming from? You know, and some of that I can sense by checking out my inner state. Uh, you know, sometimes it's in the words. Uh, calling someone an idiot is usually non, is usually uh, reactive, for example. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so it could be, then there are a lot of practices. It could be especially to have some, uh, even do some compassion practice with one's opponents. Watch out for the, any tendencies to demonize opponents or to, to create others as opponents. Those are, those are hallmarks of reactivity. See, I didn't hear whoever spoke. I didn't hear This is, this is Sharon. Um, I had a comment that, you know, when you said community, yeah. it's important that I think when we're doing things like writing letters or whatever, that that place of practice of, of going to your sangha, whether that's a, like our, we have an engaged Buddhist study group, going to the people in that or some of the people you're closest to, yeah, you're, yeah. you're, you know, Buddha buddy or mentor or whatever, and running it by them and talking with them, showing them to somebody else and getting feedback is really important for me. It keeps me out of 
my reactivity place. Really great. Yeah, very fundamental to, uh, but even just to have the intention to be non-reactive goes a long way, but then to have a community. I'm trying to be non-reactive with this letter to the editor. What do you think? Right, right. Right. And, and you know, having that community intelligence is wonderful. Yeah, it's Lynn, yeah. looks like, yeah. Yes, um, what you were saying just a few minutes ago made me think of uh, wonderful Michelle Obama, who said, when they go lo low, <laughs> when they go low, we go high. That's right. Because we know whenever we uh, are address, especially when we're addressing people with whom we're in disagreement, at least if there's basic kindness and respect, uh, everything will go so much smoother. Yeah, yeah, thank you, Lynn. Um, actually, I want to add one complexity. Going high when they go low doesn't guarantee that things will go smoothly. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, but, but the alternative isn't so good either. Right. No, it's, uh, I'm sorry to say that being non-reactive, you can try this out interpersonally. When you're non-reactive and someone else is very reactive, it doesn't necessarily transform their reactivity, right? Uh, you're right. You're right. So, but it uh, can make you feel better about yourself as a person, maybe. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it, I think it's uh, one staying in integrity you know, with another person. One's not cutting off the relationship. One's hopefully holding the other person with some compassion and empathy. And yeah. that allows for the future possibility of, you know, of uh, what Dr. King would call reconciliation. Right. So that's, it, it doesn't uh, burn bridges, so to speak. But on the other hand, people can be uh, themselves stuck in reactivity for a long time. So we sometimes, uh, yeah, uh, good intentions and skillful practice do not guarantee the outcome. <laughs> but they help. <laughs> uh, but they help, and without good intentions and, and skillful actions, the outcome is not going to be that good. Yes. Okay. So, Thank you. I could jump in. I think that. Um, Non, being non-reactive with uh, someone who's highly reactive yeah. doesn't really mean being sweet yeah. and gentle. And I was reading, I can't remember, it was in a book review, I think, of a, in the last few days, I was an African-American, this was a, several decades back, saying um, sweet words, this is a, one of the African-American leaders, sweet words will not get um, white people to accept us, will not get yeah. racist people to accept us by being sweet. I didn't mean to say white people in general, but I, I scratched that. I meant to say like racist people. Uh, so what what do you think could, would be the MO then of someone who wanted to be non-reactive but didn't want to be just, you know, sweet and conciliatory mm. and independent yeah, kind of person? Yeah, thank you so much. Maybe, maybe this will be the, the last one. Um, last question, then we can move towards closing. I think it's a really, um, really crucial question that uh, non-reactivity, like you were suggesting, doesn't mean being nicey-nice. 
right? Uh, non-reactivity uh, doesn't mean saying, let's see, I'm getting, my high school English teacher is checking, I'm getting into a double negative. Uh, um, but I'll do it anyway. Non-reactivity doesn't mean um, not being forceful. You know, so we can, uh, so I've actually been interested in how, how we can have uh, compassion, care, empathy, love, whatever language we use, when we say difficult things. In other words, we know, you know, if one's been a parent, one knows sometimes one has to say difficult things that the other one doesn't like or want. But how can you say that with love? I think you could interpret, if you look back at uh, the life and work of Dr. King or John Lewis or others, that they were often saying difficult things, but coming out of love. So another way we could say it is there can be something like this tough love. I, I've been interested in trying to say, in a Buddhist context, what does tough metta look like? <laughs> right? And because I, I think that's, it's very crucial that we uh, have to, at certain times, say no, set boundaries, say that's not acceptable, be strong and forceful. But how do we do that coming out of, uh, what, uh, some degree of compassion, empathy, non-demonization, and connection? It's a whole very, very interesting area to explore. And we can explore that again, in all these different areas of practice. I think all of us probably do ex explore that in terms of uh, interpersonal relations, right? How do, we, how do we manifest care while having a difficult conversation? Not easy. What do we say? How do we, how do we speak? You know, how, do we, how do we do that socially? So, does that get at it some, uh, Claudia? I think so. And I would just add one thing that, just if anybody's interested, there's a wonderful, it's on YouTube, it's a, it's a dialogue between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. And the topic is militant, militant action versus um, nonviolent action. Yeah. And, and um, it was a little bit contentious in the beginning on the part of Malcolm X. But in the end, I think, I think, um, I think Dr. King kind of won, won the day with his comments. And so he's a wonderful example of being nonviolent and loving, but certainly not, um, you know, rolling over. Yeah, yeah, very, very strong and forceful. And I think actually my understanding is that, you know, toward maybe the last year of his life, Malcolm X and Dr. King were not that far apart. You know, that uh, Malcolm X had those formative experiences in Mecca that led him to see the uh, more to come to the sense of the goodness of, of all beings because he saw people across ethnicity sharing the same hopes and intentions. And so there, was, there were ways in which they came together quite a bit, uh, which I think is, is very uh, helpful and, and hopeful. And yeah, not easy, right? Not easy. But that's that's I think the perspective. How do you how do you non uh, not demonize 
your opponents? How do we how can we watch our tendencies to be judgmental of what certainly are there's a lot of greed, hatred, and delusion manifesting in the news every day, right? Mm-hmm. How do you how do you work with that? So I think a lot of there's a lot of inner work that's required and you know and you know compassion and some of it I, I think it's this mix of, maybe I'll finish with this, it's this mix of uh, the wisdom dimension, which is really understanding this teaching of uh, dukkha and the end of dukkha. It's really a wisdom teaching, understanding the nature of greed, hatred, and delusion, and then doing the inner work to transform one's own reactivity and exploring ways to uh, act uh, interpersonally, in one's family, one's work, and then in the larger world. So that's what we're, we're looking for. So let me finish uh, by saying, may, again, may our talk and discussion be of benefit uh, to ourselves, to those in our circles, and then beyond those circles, going further to meet all beings, which includes us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. I could stay and talk for an hour, but I know we have an agreement about time. (laughs) So I'll just keep this open for a few minutes for anybody who wants to say hello to a friend or ask a question. Um, Somebody wanted to know about the YouTube site for the Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Um, I couldn't find it quickly enough to give to you, but... I yeah. put something in the and chat I'll, about I'll stay here for a little while, too. Okay. So, and it, just leave it open. If anybody wants to speak, just unmute and, and we're, time. we're starting a new book study this Friday in the Engaged Buddhists uh, study group. If people would like to come, it's on Han. Thank you. Thank you. And I should say that the, uh, the sales of my book, The Engaged Spiritual Life, were the highest ever in 2017. Although the book had been around, has been around for over 10 years, 2017 sales skyrocketed. Wonder why that is. particular person was in the White House. Thank you, Donald. I'm really glad you could come tonight since we missed you in April. Well, that's right. Yeah, it's great to connect. I, I love visiting yeah. uh, San Luis Obispo and seeing the water and so forth, but it's good to see everyone and connect again. Well, this was an incredibly hot weekend to be here, so we're probably <laughs> better off on Zoom That's right, right now. that's right. <laughs> but thank you very much. You're, you're very welcome. Okay, good night, everybody. Thank, thank you so much. much. Good night, everyone. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Donald. Thank you, good night. Good night. Thanks, Donald. Thank you. Good night. Good night, night, everybody. The woman who... um... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.